This is Luke chapter 2, and we'll read verses 40 through the end of the chapter, 40 through 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So here we are this morning finishing uh, our, uh, the first two chapters of Luke. And all along the way, Luke has been working very hard at highlighting just one big, great reality. He's been working hard at trying to convince us and show us that this child who is going to be born is no ordinary child, that this is someone special. Um, I had a conversation just very recently about, uh, we're, we're continuing talking about the Christmas story, and this isn't Christmas anymore. Why are we still talking about Jesus being born? Jesus being born is not a story just for Christmas time. This is the story that changes everything. The reality that this child who came into the world was something we've never seen before and will never see again. This is something unique. This is not a story. And, and focusing on Jesus and his birth and his life is not just for Christmas. It is for Christianity to be focusing on and thinking about who is this child? And Luke has been working hard, showing us something unique and amazing is going on with this boy. Uh, we have all of these different testimonies. We have the angel Gabriel showing up to Zechariah right in the temple and the prophecy that his wife is going to bear a son. We have Zechariah doubting, losing his voice. He can't talk for the duration of the pregnancy, a supernatural losing of his voice that all of a sudden comes back when John the Baptist is born. We have the angel Gabriel showing up the second time, the angel Gabriel showing up to Mary and saying, you are going to bear a son. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And you, though you are a virgin, are going to bear a son named Jesus. And then we have the leaping of John the Baptist in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. When Mary and Elizabeth show up together, the baby leaps and this joy, the Holy Spirit comes over Elizabeth 
and says, Blessed, who is she to be so favored that the mother of her Lord should come visit her? We have the shepherds are out on the field watching their sheep or flocks by night. And the angel shows up and says, Here's, you're going to find a baby laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And then the, the veil of heaven is torn back and a multitude of the heavenly hosts sings this Gloria, glory to God in the highest and peace and goodwill to, to on Him who His favor rests. That all of these events piling up last week, that we're not done going through the first two chapters. Last week, they bring Jesus to the temple after the 40 days for Mary's purification and to pay the price of the firstborn. And Simeon and Anna are there. And when they see the child, Simeon rejoices that finally he has seen the Lord's salvation in this boy. And Anna rejoices and sings and goes and spreads the good news in her old age of 84 to maybe 104 spreads the good news of the redemption of Israel found in this boy. The Savior has come. This child is no ordinary child. And Luke has been working hard trying to get us to see and to marvel and to worship at this grand reality that Emmanuel, God, is with us. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. But the question that Luke is trying to answer now here in this final portion of these first two chapters is who does the child say that he is? So all of these people are around Jesus and there's, and there's all these, the angels are showing up and Simeon and Anna and the parents are aware they name him Jesus in fulfillment of the angels' words. But what, is the, what does the child say about himself? What, what does the child say about himself? Some would say that Jesus never viewed himself as a revolutionary figure, but that the religious community and its fervor and need for this Messiah takes this ordinary person who's, who's maybe a great teacher and elevates him to some sort of position he never wanted to be in. And there's a, there is that thought, a liberal thought, in some theological circles today that Jesus was, was forced into this position that he never really wanted to be in. Where, what does this child think of himself? We have his recorded words, the very first words out of his mouth, recorded for us here in the Gospel of Luke. How and what does this child think of himself? Sometimes when you're in trouble, it's very important who you know and and what they know. So if you if you're um, uh, my car makes funny noises sometimes, and I uh, I'm the kid that went in industrial tech with Mr. Giles Scott Giles, and uh, you're supposed to tear apart a two cycle push engine, you know, a push mower engine, and I tore it apart and it never ran again. You know, you're supposed to take it apart, put it back together, and then that's how you pass the class is you cleaned it up, made it better. I, I ruined one of Dad's perfectly fine Briggs and Stratton mowers, but, uh, motors by taking it apart, and I. So that's not me. And so, but thankfully, I know a guy, right? My brother uh, loves that kind of stuff. He works, he used to work on racing cars and just loves all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, you know a guy, so my car makes a funny noise or something goes wrong. I text my brother and say, you want to come over and listen to this? Or, or my, my really old car, my classic hot rod, my 94 Mustang, which 
it'll get classic. Don't laugh at me, Dennis. One of these days, it'll get there. Uh, you know, I, I, it needs new wheel bearings. I don't know how to do and I don't have the tools to do it. And so I call my brother up. I know a guy, right? It's, it's sometimes it really makes a difference who you know and what they know, who you know and, and who they are and what they can do. Um, you know, it's nice to have city workers in your cell phone. So that when you, you know, you're, if you've got a, you see a, a burst of pipe somewhere or something, you can, you can just get right a hold of them on your cell phone because you know them. You know, you, you've, it's important to know who you know. I've had two, unfortunately, water breaks in my front yard. And I, each time I'm able to get right a hold of who I need to that can solve the problem. It's sometimes it really helps who you know and what they know, Right? I mean, that's, not, that's nothing revolutionary. It really helps who you know and what they know. And we're going to try to answer that question. How important is it in knowing who you know and what you know? So that's what we're going to be trying to work towards, who you know and, and who they are, what they're about. But just a few details that are very interesting in this passage. We have in these... Uh, you know, whatever verses, amount of verses here, 13, 14 verses, cover 30 years of time. 30 years of time are spent in these 13 verses. And then the rest of the Gospel of Luke focuses on three years. 30 years are found right here. And then three years are in all the rest of this. This is the, re- this is the only recorded account we have of any activity of Jesus As a youth, when you read verse 40 of chapter two, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. That one verse covers his infancy all the way to 12. At this point is where we would see the wise men are showing up there at some point after they return from the temple and their purification, likely the why we don't know for sure, but likely the wise men then show up. Likely in this one verse is the time that Joseph gets the warning from the angel that Herod is going to come and murder all the babies in Bethlehem. And so they, they take off and they escape to Nazareth or to Egypt and they spend some time in Egypt until an angel comes and tells Joseph, Herod's dead, it's okay to go back. And they go back to Nazareth. They come out of Egypt. God calls his child. It's very, very prophetic there. But all of those events are happening here in this one verse. And you can find the rest of those details in the Gospel of Matthew. But So 12 years is tied up in this from birth to 12 in verse 40. And then down in 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. That's covering age 12 to 29 or 30. That's covering the other 18 years of his life in one verse. This is the detail, this is the lifespan, the, the growing up of Christ. And we get one story, one story stuck in the middle of that full 30 years. It's probably an important story. Probably an important story if this is the one story that we get out of these 30 years. Those verses are important. And let me tell you why. We're going to spend more time on why those are important. But... Jesus was a real person, okay? Jesus was born a baby, and so he had to grow and become strong, much as every child has to do. Jesus was real. You know, it's, if, if, 
what we make much of in Christianity, and rightfully so, is Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying on the cross for our sins, resurrecting, ascending back to heaven. But really, couldn't he have done all of that in a weekend? You know, if, if the whole point is just go down, die on the cross for the sins, stay in the tomb for a few days, resurrect, come down back up, you know, just take a week and just go down for a little bit. If that's all it was, Jesus, if that's all it was needed for us, he could have done it in a weekend, right? But what happens is Jesus is born as a baby and he lives his life. He grows, he becomes strong, he's filled with wisdom. He increases in wisdom and stature and in, in favor with God and with man. We'll talk more about this in the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4. But what we see is the importance of Jesus to grow up as a human because we need this representative. We need this someone who is separate from us, but yet one of us to, to present us to God. And there's two classes of obedience that we have to talk about with, with Jesus. There's passive obedience and active obedience. Okay, So they're both obediences. One's passive and one is active. We talk about the passive obedience of Christ. This is his sufferings. When he goes to the cross, it's nothing that he's doing. He is suffering. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that he learned obedience from what he suffered and that Jesus had a passive obedience. He suffered. He received the suffering that was due to him. That is his passive obedience. But that he also has over here his active obedience. Not only does he take on the wrath for sin, but he also lives the righteous life so that he has a merit. He has credit to give out to those who had placed faith in him. We have the passive obedience and the active obedience. So that 2 Corinthians 5.21 means something. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, passive obedience, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and in Christ, he is living his life earning righteousness, earning the righteous declaration from God, so that at the cross we have this great exchange where our sin is laid upon him and his righteousness is given to us. So it is really important that Jesus is born as a baby and lives this life without sin and earns God's favor so that all who then trust in Christ, that favor that he earns is credited to our account. So that when God looks at you, sometimes we say when you're a Christian that God looks at you, he just sees Jesus. That's where that comes from. Your sin laid onto him and his passive obedience, his righteousness given to you from his active obedience. The... That, so it's, there's a ton of stuff tied up in those two verses. We also see the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary. We don't have time to talk much about this, but these are parents. Jesus, God chooses to put Jesus in a very devout family. The Son of God is born into a devout family. Every year they go to Passover. And this is a long journey. This is likely a three to four day journey for them from Nazareth, they would travel in the four days to Jerusalem, they would stay the full week, and then they'd travel the four days back. And so to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it would take them the better part of your month to come and worship God. 
Jesus is put into this devout family. And just as a side note, as a conviction for my own life and for maybe your life, if it was important for the Son of God to be born into a religious family that is serious about the things of God, how important is it for our children that they be in a family that takes seriously the things of God? Just a thought, just a thought. We've got to move on. The third thing is this missing person event. It was common that after you've traveled to Jerusalem, we're moving on now, they would go back to Nazareth all in a great big group. And so likely you'd have the children up front because they were the slowest ones. They would lollygag and whatever. So if you put them at the back, then the children get left behind. So you put the kids up front so you can kind of shuffle them along. Let's go. The women would walk in the, in the middle. They'd walk behind the children, kind of forcing them all along. And then the men would take up the, the, the end and they'd have their discussion, whatever, at the back of the group. And so likely there's this large caravan of people leaving and they all walk out together and they're on their way. And I assume maybe Joseph thinks Jesus is 12. It's not, not yet a man, which is at the ripe old age of 13, when he'd become a son of the law, he'd become a man. He's probably up there with the kids maybe or walking with his mother. And maybe Mary thinks, well, he's up with the kids or back with Joseph. I don't know. And they walk a whole day's journey, 20 miles possibly. And all of a sudden, they go to gather as a family and Jesus isn't there. And he's gone. And so... They can't travel at night by themselves back to Jerusalem, marauders and criminals and whatever, so they stay the night, travel the full 20 miles back, day two. It's probably just get there, lay down to sleep that night, go look for Jesus, and finally on the third day, they find him. And where is he? He is in the temple discussing the law of God with these teachers. One day out, one day back, one day of looking, and they find Jesus in the temple. And here we have the first recorded words of Jesus on record. The first recorded words of Jesus. They are indignant, unjustifiably likely. Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for him in great distress. Don't we as parents always find our kids' behavior as malicious against us for some reason? (laughs) I don't think that's the case. But uh, Mary sees in this a great offense. But Jesus just flatly answers, why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's just two things I want to highlight from this text in the last of our time. Two things that we see from these words of Jesus. The first thing we see is that Jesus sees his identity as one unique with God. He says, did you not know that I would be, that I must be, in my father's house. He uses the the phrase there, my father's house. It was common, or maybe more permissible in that day and age to talk about God as our father. You would maybe say he's the God, he's our father of the people of Israel. You would have this kind of general claim. He's the father of creation. You'd speak of God in that way. But Jesus doesn't use these kind of obtuse or you know kind of bigger ways of talking about God as father he says did you not know that I must be in my father's house he is not some generic or innocuous or just kind of general claim Jesus is claiming God as his, as his father not just our father and there's to make the point that there's something going on there is they didn't misunderstand what Jesus was saying when he called God his father. 
read this in a commentary, this statement is the first time in Scripture that any individual claimed God as his personal father. The Jews viewed God as the father of all in a creative sense and the father of Israel in a national sense, but no one had the audacity to claim God as his father in a personal, intimate sense because of the profound implications of such a claim. For Jesus to call God his father, my father, had huge implications. And this is, these are the implications. Son, in the above examples, does not refer to origin, but to nature. The term is used to refer to Jesus Christ to establish his being of the same essence and nature with the same rights and privileges as God himself. Jewish leaders understood perfectly that by claiming to be the son of God, that by claiming that God is his father, he is God's son, Jesus was claiming deity and full equality with the father. We talk about the son of, I mean, you know, I have a son. And so that we generally mean like, you know, it's some sort of reproductive. He's a biological offspring. He is my son. But the way that the Hebrewism is using this term son of, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. And so that, that's the idea that he's the son of, that doesn't mean encouragement is his daddy, does it? No, it means that he is one of encouragement. He's the son of encouragement. Someone is called the son of perdition, a son of hell. They don't mean that literally hell is its father. They mean that person is, is, is bent on destruction. They are a son of hell. And so it's, by, it's about their nature. It has to do with their being. And so when Jesus declares God to be his father, that he is the son of God, he is saying I am of oneness. I am the same as. I am God in human flesh. So when Jesus shows up and Luke tells us this story, one of the big reasons is that we understand this child at the age of 12 is beginning to understand who he really is. This is not some ordinary child. This child is God. There are many in our world today that, that claim the name of Christian without any idea of this great reality. Christianity has become this kind of catch-all phrase of people who we think Jesus is a pretty good guy. And that, you know, Jesus, he had a lot of good social teaching. And if everyone lived like Jesus, the world would be a better place. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I think everyone should try to be like Jesus, which is impossible, by the way. But there's, you know, that kind of that phrase of, and that comes under the umbrella of, of Christian. But when what is essential to the true Christian message Orthodox Christianity and Christ, Jesus' view of himself is this reality that he's not just some great teacher. He's not some enlightened man. He's not some guy who grew up and at age 30 decided, I'm going to become a preacher. This man was God. This child that was born is God in the human flesh. Christianity is centered around this one big radical truth claim. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, we should worship him. We should worship him. We don't just listen to him as one of our good teachers. He is God. This is radical what he is saying. And the second thing we see, running out of time, that Jesus claims to be God, but he also says he's a man on a mission. He says that I must. And this is the first use of this word in the Greek, must. But it happens many more times throughout, our, throughout the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke 4, 43, 9.22, 13.33, 19.5. I was going to look them up. We're out of time. I can give you the references later if you want them. But one place we will just finally go, Luke 24, another place that Jesus uses this word that he must, he must. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. This is after his resurrection. He meets with his disciples. Then he said to him, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must, must be fulfilled. Not only does Jesus see himself as God, Jesus sees himself as as a man with a mission. Jesus came with a purpose. What is this purpose? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to him, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Not only does Jesus see himself as God because he is God in the flesh, he sees himself as a man with a mission. And this mission is to suffer. This mission is to suffer under the the wrath of God in the place of sinners. We learn from the rest of our New Testament and we'll look at more in the Gospel of Luke so that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed in His name. So, trying to wrap up from my starting question, sometimes what really matters is who you know and what their mission is. And there's nothing bigger than this. Who is this man? There's nothing bigger than who you know and what their mission is. I've spent more time at Methodist Hospital this past few months than I ever cared to be there, not visiting people as an occupation, which I'd be fine with, but just there because I have to be because of what Darla is going through. And, but, so you end up walking the halls, you know, and you hate to get familiar with a hospital. No offense to those who work in hospitals, you have to get familiar with it. But when you don't work at a hospital, you hate getting familiar with it because you're like, yeah, I know where the cafeteria You find people in the hallways and you help point them around. Oh, you want to go here? It's, you, know, you hate the familiarity that comes with being at a hospital because you just have to be there. But I was walking back from the cafeteria down on floor B, Southview Cafeteria Methodist, and I was walking back through the hallway and just thinking on this and just, you know, looking and searching for, God, I, I, I want, where, I, I, need some, I need some hope. Where's the, where's, the, where's the peace in this passage? Where's the truth? I, I'm, I'm desperate for something. We show up to with the oncologist, generally those of you who've and been through events, you, you kind of get worn down through the periods of not seeing your doctor, and you think, you, you know, you get real worn down, you think things are terrible, and then we show up to our oncologist, and he's just the nice, he's a really, he's a great guy, he's super, he's cuddly, he's just the real, I mean, he's just a big teddy bear of a guy. And you go and you talk to him and he just makes you feel better. You know, you just, you know, I was walking back from the hallway and thinking about, we, we, we drove up kind of upset and discouraged and he, you know, reaffirms us and he knows what he's doing. He's done this before. He's got a good outlook. He kind of gives you some reassurances. And I was walking back from the cafeteria and realized, you know, Sometimes who you know makes a big difference. And, and he's one of those guys. And it just came to me, was I was just one guy, our oncologist, telling us his experience, his expectations, and we end up feeling better. And we're glad we know that guy. Walking back, thinking on this text, thinking on and, and searching my heart on 
Where's the hope here? We should be glad we know a guy. We know a guy. We know a guy. Not just any guy. He's not just a really well-trained guy. He's not somebody who's got lots of information and experience. This guy is God. This guy is God, and he came to earth on a mission to pay the penalty for your sins, to live the righteous life, to earn your righteousness so that you could be given it freely by faith through, through his grace. We know a guy who is God in the flesh. I walked those halls and tried to think. You look around and so many sick people, and you wonder, how can I deal out hope? And the hope you want to deal out, and the hope you can always deal to yourself, I know a guy. I know a guy named Jesus Christ who was God in eternity past and humbles himself, comes to earth, lives the righteous life I should live, dies the death that I deserve so that through repentance and faith I could be forgiven of my sin and reconciled to him for eternity. And that he's promised to me that one day after his ascension, he promised he's going to return and make everything right. One day when sorrows, griefs are gone, as our hymn says, then we will be, dwell with him and be forever blessed. Sometimes, yes, knowing the right guy makes all the difference. Knowing the right guy makes all the difference. And this guy, God in the flesh, God on a mission to redeem his people, makes all the difference for us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to see and marvel and wonder this great reality a Savior, God in the flesh, that you did not sit far off, but you came near so that we could be brought near to you through the work of this one. Holy Spirit, God, I ask you would send your Holy Spirit, giving us eyes to see and hearts to rejoice in this reality. In Christ's name, amen.